Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. In this podcast series, we are talking with educators we know are thoughtful and effective to hear how they are coping with the unprecedented closure of their school buildings and how they are planning for the future. We've talked with school and district leaders from New York to California, Oregon to Alabama, and lots of folks in between. Today, we are talking with Mary Lang, principal of West Godwin Elementary School, and Michelle Kronicki, director of curriculum and instruction in Godwin Heights Public Schools. Godwin Heights is just outside of Grand Rapids, Michigan. The first time I went to Godwin Heights was back in 2009 to visit North Godwin Elementary School where Ms. Kronicki was then a teacher and William Federhoff was principal. I was visiting because the school where two thirds of the students qualified for free and reduced price meals was way outperforming the state on most measures. The principal who had led huge improvement Arellis Diaz was then assistant superintendent for curriculum and instruction, and she was one of the many leaders who were part of the study of school leadership I did with Christina Theokas in our book, Getting It Done, published by Harvard Education Press in 2011. I learned a lot about school leadership from Arellis Diaz, who is now a director at the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. Principal William Federhoff is now superintendent of the district. Longtime teacher in the district, Mary Lang, became principal of North Godwin. When I visited a few years ago, I felt as if the school was in good hands. She oversaw the transition to being a community school, meaning that it has what we call wraparound services, like social workers, after-school programs, and health services. This year, she took on a new job of principal of the only other elementary school in the district, West Godwin. Meanwhile, Michelle Kronicki took Arellis Diaz's old job of director of curriculum and instruction for the district. The reason I go through that history with all those names is not to confuse you, but to try to illustrate what I've talked about before on this podcast, and that is that there are what could be considered—that is to say—school and district leaders are developed within cultures of leadership, and there's a very strong culture of leadership in Godwin Heights. So, welcome, Ms. Lang and Ms. Kronicki. It's been a long time since we talked. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. I hope you and your families are healthy and safe. We're doing very well here in Michigan, trying to ride out the stay-at-home orders, and it's turning to summer in Michigan, so that's helpful, seeing more sunshine. Sunshine helps. Did I describe the leadership genealogy in Godwin Heights accurately? Am I right to say there's a culture that helped shape your leadership? I agree completely. I haven't thought about it like that, but hearing your words um, describe the path we were on, uh, we've been on, um, I agree. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Yeah, I would agree as well. Um, Hearing you explain it that way just gave me a really warm feeling. We always talk about hashtag Godwin family, and it truly is a family. Um, Michelle and I have been in the district for over 20 years. Um, We're working with the most amazing and dedicated leadership team, as well as staff, we're, we're really fortunate that 
most of the people, all of the people that work in our district really feel a calling to work with our population. And um, we, we say a lot, we bleed blue and gold, which, is our, which are our school colors. So um, there's a lot of love in this district for sure. Agreed. Well, could you describe the district a little bit? It's, um, it's just outside Grand Rapids. I think the, the, the main landmark is a, a stamping plant that closed quite a few years ago. Uh, that made, I think, doors for GM cars. Was that it? Yes, it did. Um, the GM stamping plant closed, I believe, in December of 2010 or 2009, January 2010. Um, that was kind of the mainstay in our district where um, we saw a, an extreme change in demographics in our district from 2010 till about 2015 or 16, um, going from a more of a middle-class, mostly white school district to a melting pot of a variety of um, ethnicities and watching the population go from more of a middle-class population to a very low-income struggling population where many of our families are living in poverty. Now we're close to 90% as a district of families that um, live in poverty. So um, fortunately, we're what Michigan calls a CEP school. So we all of our children receive free and reduced lunch, no matter um, what their income level is at home. So we're fortunate to be able to provide that for them at least. Um, but we've seen also a big influx of refugee children and her Hispanic population is now over 50% of our district population. So, so you're now two months into distance learning, what we call distance learning. What have you guys learned? Well, I think our remote learning process, um, we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot from our students. We've learned a lot from listening to teachers, as well as um, the opportunity to hear from parents and guardians. Um, obviously, it hasn't been easy. We've borrowed the, the phrase um, to provide grace for ourselves and for one another. When we talk with our teachers about the unknown, it's difficult, but we have to try. So we've asked them to embrace this opportunity or remote learning to try new things. You know, we, we've removed the shackles of testing. Um, what is it you can, can dream and what can you try to do to engage your children? The basis of our remote learning plans have been about social emotional learning and building and continuing on the foundations. So that was easily adapted for uh, Mary's building because as we started this new K2 building this year, that was the foundation of everything was getting kids comfortable in the school system, um, getting our staff to um, reconnect or connect for the first time. And so building on those relationships led us to then um, look at reviewing curriculum or reviewing some standards that we had and then get the opportunity to then move into new stuff or new type of learning once kids were more comfortable. So what are you happiest about that that teachers did or that the district did in terms of learning? Wow, so much. <laughs> I would say that what we've heard from our teachers is they feel so much more connected to our families um, because they've had to reach out to them via the phone, via text, via email, um, via Google Meets and Zoom meetings. Um, so they're feeling much more engaged and connected with the families than they ever have been before. And this is something that 
you know, we've always had a strong push for in our district because that connection is so important. But even even then, they're feeling that much more connected. You know, we're requiring that teachers um, at least attempt to contact families um, and work to contact families at least once a week. Many of our teachers are doing more than that. Um, so our, our parents are hearing from us a lot. Um, and I think that that's been probably the biggest bonus of um, this this online learning platform, remote learning. Um, certainly there's been a lot of struggles, um, especially I feel like with the littlest kids, which are the kids in my building, um, because they obviously need a lot of parent support to be able to engage in the learning and it can be difficult at times. But but as far as bonuses, I just, I feel like teachers feel even more connected to their kids, even though we're not seeing them every day. We've really worked hard to provide that connection and help with the social emotional piece. We're meeting, we're offering weekly meetings with parents as well to um, just check in, talk to another adult, tell us how it's going, um, what what are your struggles? Many of the people that are on that on that virtual meeting are parents themselves of young children, so they're able to share. Oh, yeah, the same things happening in my household. You know, it's it's really difficult. So um, that I think has been good. We haven't had a huge turnout of parents that have attended that, but you know, a handful, and I think it's been beneficial for the ones that have participated. I think an additional bonus um, coming out of the work that teachers have done is a renewed sense of collaboration and uh, reliance on their team, both in face-to-face and in uh, electronic feedback surveys. Staff have continually mentioned, I couldn't get through this without my grade level team, or I couldn't get through this without my department team. Um, In our list of district expectations, as we moved into it, we asked that um, like grade teachers collaborate and share similar lessons. um, Whereas, I might move a little more independently in the classroom um, in brick and mortar settings. So they um, embraced that idea and then really took ownership of the PLC time that they had scheduled together for for learning and for problem solving together as a grade level team. I think just to second that, the collaboration has been amazing. And in fact, we've joked about in our weekly PLC meetings with teachers that we may continue to do virtual PLC meetings because we seem to be so much more effective and on point and everybody gets what needs to be done, done um, instead of going off on trails a lot of times like we do in person. So um, that's been a huge bonus to this. That's really interesting. So one of the things that's been interesting to me talking with folks around the country is that quite clearly distance learning is working really well for some kids and is disastrous for others, right? I mean, it's it's a little bit of a crapshoot, which is which. It seems like some kids you didn't expect are doing better online than they might have. And some kids who you thought would be doing great are kind of like just imploding, self-imploding. So are you finding that or are you more even keeled on that? I would say that inconsistency is definitely a challenge. Some kids are able to connect daily. Others, um, depending on their home situation or what their responsibilities within the home might be, um, they're, they're finding hurdles you know, to getting connected either electronically or even completing an alternate like paper assignment I don't know, Mary, is there more for you to add? 
Yeah, you know, I can speak specifically to the K2 population. So uh, just, to, just to back up a step, I didn't realize you had changed the configuration of the school. So you're just K2. Yeah. Oh, just? Yeah, we did. Well, no, no, no. I just mean (laughs) not additional grades. You try to manage 170 kindergartners on the first day of school. Talk about herding cats. (laughs) Karen, many years ago when you came to North and we kind of started to think about our journey that we'd been on, you had sort of asked us, you know, how did this happen? And we we didn't know. We sort of started to explore then, you know, the work with Arellis and then um, Mary and I are so blessed to continue to work with Bill as our leader. Um, that that goal of making grade level schools had kind of been in the back of our mind for a long time. And when you posed the question, how do you guys make this go district wide? I don't know, whether it was 2010 or when it was, when you asked that, we were like, we're not sure. <laughs> we're going to try. But yeah. um I think right around that time, maybe around 2012, 2013, is really when this particular (laughs) leadership team decided we are no longer going to do things in isolation. We're going to make sure that if it's an initiative for one and it's important, then we will all get on board with the initiative. So certain um, elements of district goals and district initiatives sort of transcended the K-12 population. And that sort of brought us more together as a total Godwin family. Um, Our voters initially within the district did not want to, well, I wouldn't say our voters. We heard loud and clear from our parents early on, they didn't want to separate schools. But this past two years has really, our our demographics have changed, like Mary said, but um, they started to embrace that Godwin family too. And we had less resistance to try it. And we're excited to see where it goes. So kindergartens, first and second grade, though, the challenge there, I mean, there, there are a lot of challenges, right? There's socialization, there's all kinds of things. But the big challenge is how do you teach kids to read and getting them to read, right? And how do you, like, how is that going? How, how are you able to really continue reading instruction remotely? Well, we've um, we've cho- we chose to use at the start of this. We were really grappling with what platform to use with our K two population. So the third grade through twelfth grade population had already been using Google Classroom as a resource within the classroom in the regular school day. Some of our second graders had been using that as well, but not all of the second grade. We didn't feel that we could remotely teach parents how to start a Google Classroom. Um, with our K-1-2 kids. So we decide, you know, we really grappled with what do we use to, to provide instruction to our, our K-2 population. And we ended up using um, Weebly's, which were, had already been established. So teachers created videos and um, provided links to families for language arts lessons, math, science, social studies lessons. And so that's what we did, but we quickly found that we didn't have um, a good way of any kind of accountability, any way to track evidence of participation. Um, 
you know, we had some programs like IXL and Epic that the teachers could log into and see if their children had had logged in. So we could use that as participation evidence. But um, if kids weren't showing up at the weekly Google Meets or if we didn't hear from families or we couldn't connect with them, we really had no idea if their kids were participating or not. So that was our biggest struggle with the K-2 population. And like I said earlier, um, they need a lot of parent support. And as things progress through the the, um, COVID crisis, a lot of our parents were called back to work. Many of our parents are essential workers. You know, they work at the grocery stores and the gas stations and they're the healthcare workers and nursing homes and that kind of thing. Those are the jobs that our families do. And so now you're looking at a family who has parents who are working, you know, kids who are home during the day, maybe being watched by an older sibling or a neighbor. And then we're adding on top of that, you know, when you get home tonight, make sure your kids are doing their schoolwork too. And so it was just really overwhelming for a lot of parents to be able to um, implement that. We, we had a lot of phone calls from parents of my kids won't do the work for me. Um, I think we can all sit back and say, you know, we're all educators. I know personally, my kids, my personal children did not work for me like my students did. You know, I used to joke that I can manage 25 students a day and I can't get my own to to do their homework, you know? So um, it's different when you're trying to teach your own child. And and these are our families and parents that don't have any education experience to be able to teach, you know, their children. So we were we've spent a lot of time in thinking about how are we going to get our parents to help or have the capabilities of of helping their children because we need a lot of support from parents in order to have any kind of instruction we we truly didn't we did not do any face to face live instruction for the entire time we've been doing remote learning. So the teachers are providing video instruction where they're doing their lessons on a video and recording it and providing it to their students. But, you know, our our Zoom meetings are are social emotional. You know, we're, we're playing games with them. We're doing a show and tell or, you know, go find something that starts with B in your house or go find something in your house that's orange, you know, little things like that. But they're not we're not providing an instruction. Now for the summer, we're providing a summer school. We are going to attempt to do online live instruction with students. So that's kind of our next venture to see if we can get them to work in that capacity so that we're actually providing a lesson live while the students and the teacher are online together. So we'll see how that goes. Well, it it struck me when you were talking that that's what you were talking about, uh, Ms. Krenicki, the the grace, yeah, just you have providing to. some grace. You have to. <laughs> understanding that. Yeah. Does um, nobody any good to put fear and worry into, you know, am I going to lose my job if I don't get this straight, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And when parents are calling you and talking about, you know, they're, they're completely overwhelmed, you know, you have to say to them, it's okay. It's okay if you don't do the schoolwork today or tomorrow, you know, it's okay. I had a parent contact me yesterday about how do I log in? Where do I find the information? How do I get to this 
site and I'm where, what's my daughter's password for IXL? And I thought, are you kidding me? It's like two days of school left. We, we're done with school tomorrow. And, and then I thought to myself, who cares if she's doing it, she's doing it. Let them do it for the rest of the summer. Hopefully, you know, they can go back and access everything. Who cares that they're just starting now? At least they're starting. At least they're doing yeah, something, something right. that, that I'll, although our families are different than say some other families or districts in the city, one thing that transcends that is that we all, although we like to say parents are their kids' first teachers, our students' first teachers are their parents, um, it's really difficult, whether you're rich or poor, black or white, it's really difficult to do this job full-time and then also do your parent duties and your professional world or whatever responsibilities you have as an adult. Um, it's an awesome responsibility, and teachers handle it daily in and out of the classroom really, really well. Um, but they're not perfect. And so it's, it's sometimes um, good to say to parents, it's okay. We didn't know either. We still don't know. We're still trying. Let's just try together. So it's been good. Well, and that's one of the things that's really struck me. Nobody knows. Exactly. Right? Everybody's throwing spaghetti up yeah. on the wall and hoping yeah. that something sticks. <laughs> and a lot of times when, especially in that elementary world, we, we want kids to see that you're not the only one, Right. Johnny's going through a divorce too, or Susie's grandma's died, or Lucia's, you know, experiencing trouble at home too, or you're not the only one who struggles with math. I struggled with math and now I practice this way and I see myself different. Like this is the kind of thing that I am hoping everybody realizes everybody's struggling. There's no, no one has the answer. And we'll continue to do that through the summer and into whatever the fall looks like. If we had answers, we'd be putting it out there and trying it, but we don't know yet. Well, that, that brings me to, you know, what it, you may not have the answers, but fall's coming. Yeah. What are you going to, I feel like it's in Game of Thrones, right? Winter is coming. <laughs> fall is coming. Sure. Um, what are you going to do? What are you thinking about? How are you thinking? Are some kids going to come back, but not all kids? How are you going to decide which kids? Um, how are you going to train your little kindergartners to wash their hands and <laughs> And and keep their mouths covered, their faces covered. I mean, how are you going to do this? Good question. We thought you would have all the answers to that. <laughs> I just told you nobody. That's why knows we got on do. this? We got on this talk with you for that reason. <laughs> we thought you were bringing the answers. Uh, I think oh, we kind of have to look at it in buckets. Um, for sure, we want to get a lot of input or continued input from our parents from our students and definitely from our teachers and our school leaders. Their experiences are much different than say mine or Mary's had been because they've been kind of in the trenches as they usually are. Um, but we'd be remiss if we didn't listen to them first. Mary and I have been really fortunate to have the support of uh, our um, tech director, Joe Radloff here at Godwin. And um, all of a sudden that job became uh, paramount, right? It kind of always was to us, but <laughs> Joe has been communicative and willing to include us in problem solving. Um, it's just been really great. So I, when I think about one thing that we would definitely do differently had we known is we'll probably um, investigate more seriously the, the, the opportunity to put um, technology in hands right away. Prior to school closure, we were doing surveys to figure out what did people have at home? How could we make this work? But we were really unsure about how long it was going to happen. Um, are people going to take advantage of the situation? How do we help, but let also yet also protect ourselves for if we return in the fall and then we don't have the funds to replace equipment? 
I think we have a much better understanding um, of what our people need and what connection and services they need. Um, so we'll be able, I would think we would definitely see a difference in the technology world for our, for our folks. Yeah, that was crucial at the start of this. You know, we we tried to be real limiting on what we allowed to be checked out from the school because we were thinking, you know, ahead to the, to the fall and, you know, what if we don't have those devices come back? Can we, you know, we know we need them. And so we, we tried to be real selective. And, you know, if family said they had a phone at home, we said, well, you can use your phone, you know, and we, it became evident really quickly that that wasn't, um, effective. Many of our families also don't have, some don't have internet at all. Some have, many have sketchy internet. I mean, we all know from being on calls all the time now, even our home internet, which, you know, I have as much as I can get, whatever you pay high prices for your internet at home. Um, and it still doesn't, isn't working great all the time. Well, our families have a lot of times the lowest plan of internet at home. And so you can imagine how slow it may be or how the connectivity is not, is not great. So that's, that's been a big issue for a lot of our families and we worked through it. We made changes along the way, but I think like Michelle said, we would do it differently right from the start and right from the get go um, the next time so that they had those um, opportunities to have devices in their hands and be ready to roll right from the start. Godwin Heights and the, and the Wyoming um, city area have been really blessed to have um, partnership with a couple of different organizations and uh, a private foundation um, in the Grand Rapids area has been really supportive. And so we've been able to provide internet access to our 60 families that were initially struggling to get that. And we've worked through a variety of different formats. What works for one family didn't work for another. So we found this hotspot that works for this family, but the other family can use this plan and with a local cable company. Um, and then we've also, each building um, was able to secure Chromebooks um, that will go directly to kids, whether it's at home or here in the school, whenever it works. So Ms. Lang, you're on the, the commission with the governor to on a reopening plan, is that right? Yes, there's a... Um a group that was just recently created in the state of Michigan called the Return to Learn um, group. And the basis of this group is bringing together lots of people within the field of education, teachers, superintendents, principals, parents, community members, to give advice to the governor on what they think we should do in the future. So we, we initially just had our first meeting actually yesterday. So um, I don't have a lot to share on that on what, what's happening, but, but it's basically a think tank of a lot of different people coming from the education field and the communities and the parents to try to put together the most up-to-date recommendations to the governor as she makes her decisions on what's going to happen, along with the state superintendent, Michael Rice. Obviously, he's a part of this committee as well um, to make recommendations to the governor's council to on what should happen with school in the fall. So um, I look forward to working with the team of people. There are a lot of um, great people on there, and they've broken it up into um, groups of urban, rural, and suburban um, committees. So I'm on the urban committee. Obviously, our school district is considered an urban school district. And so because the needs are so vast, 
you know, um, certainly kids here in Godwin Heights don't need the same thing as students in the upper peninsula of Michigan, you know, who are in a very rural, but, but they also have their, their issues of, you know, talk about internet troubles, you know, some of those areas don't even have internet access available. So um, there's certainly challenges at every level. And so we're trying, we've broken it up into those three categories to try to pinpoint the challenges at each specific level and kind of problem solve what we might suggest to do to solve those things. Well, so you, you come into this really as a very strong unit, it sounds like. Are you going to come out of this Stronger or weaker? I mean, I, you're going to say stronger, I know. <laughs> I would say stronger. I mean, I don't know. We spent, as, in, as the administrative team, we spent three the first three weeks not coming into the buildings, not only meeting remotely and just kind of waiting it out to hear what was going to happen in the state. You know, we at that time we were providing just extension activities for kids and kind of waiting things out to hear what was going to happen. And then the minute the governor said, you know, nope, we're closing for the rest of the year, we were back together as an administrative team, like every day, you know, planning, making our plans and preparations. And then the teachers were brought on board as soon as we had our plan formulated or the the skeleton of the plan formulated, we brought the teachers in for their input and their um, perspective on what we had started. And they worked their tails off for that first week in preparation for online learning. And, you know, the collaboration alone, I had teams, I had grade level teams that were struggling to work together effectively in the building. And once this started, man, they just really came to the table and worked so well together and supported each other um, in a way that I hadn't seen all year. And so I I would have to say we're going to come out stronger in this. Um, Our team, I think you know this, Karen, our our administrative team is like no other in my mind. Obviously, it's the only one I've been on, but (laughs) we, you know, in talking with colleagues and people around the state, they don't have the same kind of relationship with their team as we do. We are brutally honest with one another. We love each other unconditionally. We have each other's backs and um, we're in this together. Like we are so in this together and we're led by Bill who is just so supportive of everything that we do. And it's so, so much of a shared leadership um, dynamic in our district that it's just, it's really rewarding. And I, I would have to say we're definitely going to be stronger. I already feel like we're stronger. So Mary painted a beautiful picture and that's the truth. But underneath all of that, um, I know she'll agree. There was a lot of hard work and um, just like probably the tensions that are building within homes after being together for so long, our team uh, experienced tension as well. Bill, as well as Mary and I and others on the team, we we have a style where maybe I have an idea, but I'm going to shoot it out to you guys to figure out if there's a better way. And then feeling confident with whatever we come up with as a decision, I can put forward and say, this is the plan. Bill operates that so well, but in the distance of things, the timing for everybody to be together without a consistency really stretched us. I'm, I'm sure Mary can attest a few times where I said, I think I need a break. We need to get, I need to get out of this room because 
so much was unknown. There were times when individuals were kind of traveling down this path and harping on something that they didn't know about, but others in the room had already solved the problem, but it was not, we didn't have a chance to connect on it. And so that was particularly difficult for myself. And um, just like in a high functioning team, we had to call each each other out on a few things and say, hey, I don't appreciate that that happened because I knew the answer, but you didn't ask me, nor did I have a chance to get a breath in to say, time out, we've solved this. Let's not waste time. It was, uh, and I, it was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we're so committed to, to consistency within the district. That's the other piece of it. We want, we didn't want a message to go out before, you know, to the high school before it went out to the elementary and, you know, okay, we're sending this out, you know, at 10 o'clock the next morning. And then, you know, inevitably it would get sent out, you know, by somebody else a couple hours earlier or something. And we're like, what, what did you do? You know? And so there were, there was a lot of tension during that, but because we're such a high functioning team, I think in like a family, I mean, it's just like a family, there's ups and downs and we are able to call each other out and call up, call the other person up and say, what did you do? You know, why are you doing this? Or what are you thinking? And, you know, we don't use as many nice words, but <laughs> we, but we know we, there's, there's never any hard feelings in the long run. Like we know we're all in it for our kids and we're, our intentions are good, are always good. They're not to kind of try to one up each other ever. Um, we're, we, we have such good intentions at heart and that's where that whole grace comes in. We had to learn to give each other grace too. Um, in the things that were going on. A lot of pressure was put on Michelle as the director of instruction and curriculum. You know, a lot of times people would look to Michelle like, what, Michelle, how are you going to answer this? What are you going to do? And so it it was a lot of stress and work. I mean, those first weeks were really high stress. Something Um, that's been important to me for many years is the the consistency in um, clarity and messaging and communication. So um, I've definitely learned that with Bill. I definitely learned that with other leaders such as Arellis. And so bringing that kind of um, to always hold true for our whole team to say at the crux, we're always going to be clear. No one should, no teacher should be left not knowing what we're about. Um, So, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we established there'll be three big ideas and everything that we're going to do we'll focus around these three big ideas. And while Mary and I and other instructional um, leaders kind of at the forefront can recite those things by heart and we know them, we're constantly trying to find ways to weave the message back in so that others that are on board or others that are new um, can be reminded that things haven't changed. We've always been about these things. Um, So that consistency, consistency and clarity of communication was really important as we um, define what remote learning would look like at Godwin Heights. Uh, so, so why don't you just like name those three things just to close us out? Sure. Our three big ideas revolve around sheltered instruction, 21st century learning, and content area literacy. There you go. Kind of, kind of says it all, right? Well, um, yeah. Thank you so much, Michelle Knicky and Mary Lang. Did we cover all the important questions? Did I leave anything out? You know, sitting back and thinking about it, the only thing we didn't bring up was like school funding, and I don't know if that's for your audience or not. But that—that's you know—that's at the forefront of um, 
concern at this point, at least in the state of Michigan. And I would have to think in most states, I don't know. Um, but we're looking at like drastic, drastic budget cuts that this, you know, the superintendents are saying we can't even function with that kind of budget cut and, and provide, you know, PPE and, um, you know, more cleaning and all of the recommendations, you know, I just got an email from my dentist who the dentist office just opened up in Michigan this week. And in, in the email, it says, you'll be charged an additional $25 fee per appointment for, for PPE. And I thought, are you kidding me? <laughs> are you kidding me? Like $25, you know, per appointment. And I'm like, I, I'll be finding a new dentist, I think, but I don't know, maybe that will be the norm. But, but the thought, the budget, you know, is a huge concern in the state of Michigan. Well, and I, I was remiss to not ask about it because um, it's a huge issue everywhere. Yeah, I mean, there's been all kinds of memes about it on online about, you know, every small business is being bailed out and corporations, you know, are getting funding. And no other place has been asked to do what education has been asked to do in a really short amount of time. Right. With, with only drastic budget cuts in our future, you know. That's exactly right. I'm going to turn to Tanji Reed Marshall right now, and we're going to talk. Um, Tanji, what I was struck by was this idea of clarity and communication. Um, and I think, I think we've heard from several people that communication is the big challenge to really make sure that all teachers, all parents, all students, all administrators understand what's going on at the time it's going on. And I, I wonder how you, as a as a longtime teacher, how you thought about that. Yeah, I thought um, it's up definitely the way to go and the most challenging because there are so many different ideologies around types of communication. There's also different styles of communication. Um, and then this just put, as they both talked about, this puts a stressor on communication, right? Like we are, we're able to communicate faster and more doesn't mean it's better, right? It's just more of it, <laughs> right? Um, and I was really struck by their openness um, and they didn't name the word culture, but listening to them, I came up with the name that they talked about their culture of transparency they talked about their culture of honesty. And I think, you know, in these kinds of stress-laden times, you are going to not become something other than who you already are, right? It's like you don't become something new. You just become more of what you are and their ability and willingness to say, hey, you know what? We made decisions. And when someone went against them, we called them out. Well, they didn't just start doing that. That's kind of like what they do. Right. And so they just sort of kept going. And it's it's hard, it's really encouraging for their students because, you know, as they both talked about, Mary and Michelle both said, we're gonna come back stronger. And here's why we know we will. You know, and other people are gonna say, Well, yeah, we're gonna come back stronger, yay, stronger. But they may not, you know, they may not necessarily have the pieces in place from a 
cultural dynamic, right? So you can have all of the operational structures in place, but if you're not marrying the technical fixes with the adaptations necessary that's built on a strong culture, your technical fixes will only take you so far. And so it's really encouraging to hear them talk, you know, over and over about, you know, what we stand for. These three things, you know, shelter in place instruction, 21st century skills, you know, content based literacy, content area literacy, you know, which is a big deal for me, too. That's really key because those clear, focused three big ideas are a through line. And so you you got to cut away all of the sort of, you know, around the edges tinkering that people like to do, right? Because when they start tinkering, you're like, oh, well, no, no, no. Let's get back to the three. Like, you know, you get to really help people stay focused in a, in a challenging time. So it's really encouraging to hear. Yeah. But, you know, it's still, I still am confronted by, I don't understand how you're going to get kindergartners, first graders, and second graders all in a building together safely. They're going to be creative. I, it's going to be, you know, there's a, um, I think there are interesting ways. I've been hearing about some ways, um, preliminary ways happening um, where community spaces can also be used as spaces for distance learning. And I'm sorry, not distance learning, but coming back face-to-face learning. Face-to-face right? learning, so, but, in, but six feet apart. But yeah. Exactly, right? So maybe they're not going to all be able to fit inside the building as it stands. Maybe there are maybe some there's a boys and girls club uh, partnership. or a YMCA. That's or, right. Uh, you know, the YMCA or, you know, church basement or something, you know, where they can have a variety of partnerships that will open up their facilities to allow for the um, face-to-face instruction that requires this sort of spreading out, right? And so maybe they're not going to be able to, you know, maybe they're going to have split days. So I'm giving away my age right now, but when I was uh, in preschool, my sister went um, at a different time of day for kindergarten, for preschool. She went in the morning and my mom was super scared because I had to have an afternoon nap. And so like, was I going to be on the afternoon time or was I going to be in the morning time? And so, you know, those kinds of structures was old might be new again, right? So they might be bringing back some of those things that we used to have to do a longer time ago um, where we Well, even a longer be- time ago, my mother, my mother <laughs> who went to Erasmus High School in, in Brooklyn in the 19... Uh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, whatever, the 1940s. <laughs> Um, they had split sessions. Mm -hmm. She shared a locker with another kid who she never saw. Right. Right. So all those things, what happened, what's happened. Right. And so we're going to have to, you know, modernized by being, by taking a look at the past on some structures. Right. So, you know, we'll, we'll do some modernization by looking back um, because there really is nothing new, totally under the sun. So there are some things that we can, borrow from the past that might have worked um, and put a new spin on it so that we can do the kind of face-to-face education and instruction that the little ones really need. You know, it's, it's not, it's hard to teach little ones how to read the structure of reading via, you know, some other kind of tool. But I was excited when they said, we're doing things like go find something in your home that starts with B. 
right? So like that seamless line of my home and my school are now blending and, you know, I don't have to rely on simply external things for my learning as well. And so, you know, hearing that was encouraging as well, because now we can see that kids can learn in lots of different places once they know what the thing is that they need to know. Well, I'll be really interested in in watching what happens with the governor's uh, ready to learn. Yeah, um, that's exciting. Uh, yeah, and, and and it seems to me it one of the things that's nice about that is an attempt to build a knowledge base within the state among educators, um, so that they not that they necessarily do the same things at the same time because they all have different kinds of communities, but that they know what's going on so they have an idea and they can learn from each other. Jonah, that that's seems right. really, really powerful. Yeah. I'm sure across the nation, the the question of equitable mm. access during this type of pandemic is is one that lots of leaders will struggle with. I know we're we're struggling with it here. Yeah, that's been a critical piece for us at the Ed Trust. Critical. Yeah, that's kind of what we're we're thinking about, about and, and talking about all the time. <laughs> we might be able to make it work, but work for how many? You know, how many students are not going to be able to excel in a new type of format or a different yeah. format? And that is, it is, it, it is what keeps everybody up at night. Mm-hmm. Who will, who will excel? How will they excel? And how do we stop the predictability by zip codes, by race, and by ethnicity, how do we stop that, right? Because we know that it's already, it's sort of baked into our systems, but how do we in this opportunity time where we know it's being exacerbated, how do we disrupt the predictability of outcomes? Because we, we, know, we can, so many of us can speak to what we think the outcomes for certain students would be, but would it not be so exciting if this could be the time when we don't, when we're not able to do that now, when we're able to say we have finally put our money in line with our values for every kid and we have broken the cycle of predictability by, by you know, outcome predictability. Well, that. and that's one of the, that was one of the hallmarks of North Godwin when I first went was it had broken the the predictability, mm-hmm. um, and so I I, uh, I want to thank thank you Tanji and thank thank Ms Lang and Ms Kranicki. We at Ed Trust hope you and your family and everyone in Godwin Heights stay safe and healthy. That wraps up this episode of the Education Trust podcast: Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times. In all these conversations, I've been struck by the fact that we're talking with leaders who don't pretend to have all the answers, but who find ways around barriers and empower other leaders within their schools and districts to find solutions to problems. Every time I hear such smart, dedicated people talk about their work, it gives me hope for the field of education and for our nation. If you think this is a valuable podcast, I hope you'll recommend it to your friends and networks. Please leave a review wherever you get this podcast. That will help steer people in our direction. If you want to be in touch, you can email extraordinarydistricts at edtrust.org or tweet at edtrust or me at Karen Chenoweth or Tanji at remarsh76. 
Mike Patillo records and edits this podcast through the magic of Zoom from Tonal Park. I want to thank everyone at EdTrust who are supporting this podcast, in particular Robin Harris, Jack Fleming, and Keith Curry. And thank you to the Wallace Foundation for providing financial support. Thanks, and see you next time.